Listener supported. WNYC Studios. So, Kath. Tobin. I want to start out by talking about this one song. If you were anywhere in 2015, it was pretty much impossible to avoid. It's called On the Regular. Yes, the song was everywhere. Howdy, howdy, hi, hi. While well, everyone is minus, you could call me multiply. Just so you know, yes, yes, I'm that guy. You could give five fingers and I'm not waving high. Guess I'm never ending. You could call me pie. But really, how long till the world realize? Yes, yes, I'm the best. Fuck what you heard. Anything less is... It's the first single off an album called Ratchet by Shamir Bailey. And can I just say, he was 19 when that came Mm -hmm. out. Like, what were you doing at 19? I was not doing much. Me neither. It's so young to be successful. But the thing is, Shamir didn't want anybody to hear this song. I literally wrote that song to be hated. (laughs) Shamir says that early into making the album, it was becoming clear that the record producers he was working with had their own ideas about his sound. So he wrote something he thought would be so obviously bad, they just pulled the plug on the whole project. And I was like, he's going to be like, this sucks, whatever you tried, and that would be the end of that. Yeah. Sent it to him, this is amazing. I'm like, oh, JK, whatever. Like, (laughs) we'll record it, we'll waste our time, send it to the label, the label will be like, no, we don't want this. The label's like, we love it. I'm like, what? The song was a hit. It was in commercials, TV shows, just everywhere. It took Shamir from indie darling to mainstream star. But Shamir's success came with some very real challenges. From WNYC Studios, this is Nancy. With your hosts, Tobin Lowe and Kathy Tu. There's this one tweet that Shamir sent out in March 2015 that I love. Um, It's right around the time he was blowing up. He was starting to get a lot of attention from the media. He wrote, Also, to those who keep asking, I have no gender, no sexuality, and no fucks to give. I love that tweet so much. It's so good. It's basically Shamir responding to all these people, hearing his voice, and asking really personal questions about gender and sexuality. And Shamir says he was totally surprised by this public fascination with his personal life because he didn't really have any of that when he was growing up in this really open, supportive environment right outside Las Vegas. North Las Vegas is actually a pretty small place. And growing up there my whole life... You know, up until I was in high school, most people were able to, like, grow up with that and, like, was, like, used to me. But I still experienced, you know, like, a few, like, new kids or, like, kids who, like, just didn't know. Like, I would just, like, walk down the hallway and, like, their kids be like, is that a boy or a girl? Like, you know. But I never paid much mind to it, and it didn't really affect me much because I was popular, for lack of a better word. <laughs> like, everyone yeah. liked me. I can see that. Yeah. I can definitely see that. Weren't you, like, voted, like... Most likely to be in Vogue, um, Best Dress, and also was nominated for Prom King. But I was too cool to run. Oh. Wow. Would have won, though. That's so good. I probably would have won, honestly. I'm not even... For the rest of your life, you can say, I would have won. Not to sound like a mean girl, but... (laughs) I probably would have won, but... Um, That's amazing. So, yeah, it wasn't until I started, like, doing music and getting to the public eye where, like, I really was, like, my gender identity is, like, something different. Mm. 
who wants to start being like pretty much fetishized, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no one has ever cared this much. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. It sounds like it wasn't just that people cared. It's that they were like asking you to define it and to say what it was. Yeah. And then they're probably like, well, that doesn't make sense. Explain that some more. I don't know how I got this gig. <laughs> but back in 2015, during the, the Ratchet era, I somehow got on BBC Nightly News. It's like a talking head? Yeah. They gave me like my own like little segment. To talk about what? To talk about literally me. <laughs> Barely talked about the music. It was this staunch British dude in a suit, sat me down. They played my little montage. He's just like, <laughs> And I'm sitting there, and after the montage, the first thing he says, what is post-gender? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know, you tell me, because I didn't make that up. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the most awkward interview, because he's, like, very staunch and just, like, hitting me with, like, all these taglines that he had printed on the paper, like, literally reading it off. And all my answers is just, like, I'm just me. These were all titles and text yeah. that was, like, literally created and made up by the press. Yeah. I don't know what I'm telling you. Yeah. I'm Shamir. You want to talk about the music? Right. <laughs> Post-gender. What the? <laughs> Shamir has been into making music forever. His aunt is a musician and even helped him write the first track on Ratchet. So from an early age, Shamir knew he wanted to be a musician, and his family was behind him. I'm sitting on the couch feeling alone. I don't feel right. I learned how to sing from jazz. I learned how to play guitar from punk. And I learned how to write from country. Wow. Pretty much up until I was 16, I was actively trying to become Taylor Swift. Wow. Like, I was going to honky-tonks. I was writing strictly country music. I had a mandolin. Wow, okay. Uh-huh. I was uh-huh. going in. Uh-huh. I was like, I am going to be the next Taylor Swift. Okay. And then once I started going to Hoggy Tonks and doing it and, like, really going out there, I was like, oh, this is not going to happen because I'm black and queer. It's <laughs> just so not going to happen. Mm-hmm. At least not the way that I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And I gave myself till I was 16 because that's when Taylor Swift popped off. And I'm like, if I'm not popped off at 16, the it's whatever. Wow, it's out the door. and everything. Yeah. I was like, we're <laughs> literally trying to be Taylor Swift. Wait, so Taylor Swift, if you're not Taylor Swift by 16, you're like... I was like, like, it's over. Yeah. So after I graduated high school, I was like, I'm just going to buckle down. And like, you know, probably I was going to go to the culinary school. Mm. Um, but my mom was like actively like, this is how weird of a mom my mom is. She's actively like, no, you're going to take a break here and like just focus on your music. Wow. And I was like, you're insane. And I still I still didn't even like, I was like, whatever, you're crazy. Because she's like, you know, insane hippie lady. So I was like, okay, I'm still going to work, which I did. But I was just like, I'll just like make these songs to like make her happy, but still secretly work and like save up to like shit. (laughs) 
Those songs he made right after high school turned into an EP called North Town, and the record got a lot of critical praise, which put Shamir on the map. And that got him a contract with the record label XL, which brought a lot of opportunity, but also a lot of pressure. Shamir says XL wanted him to write all these poppy electronic tracks, stuff like On the Regular, which was exactly the kind of music he wasn't interested in making. But the label won out, and the music Shamir produced with XL became Ratchet. From the jump, you were an out queer artist. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there's a pressure for queer artists to be quote-unquote fabulous? And have you felt that pressure? Oh, my God. This is the (laughs) first, like, real question. Like, I've definitely touched on it in other interviews, but this is the first time that I've been asked. Mm. You know, because, like, as a queer artist, you're expected to be together. Mm. And no one wants to see, like a grungy, sloppy queer. But it's real. Like, we exist. And it's just like, in the media, we're just like seeing us like this monolith of just like people who are always fabulous and happy and like, no, like, we struggle like the most. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they only want to hear a success story. I think that we've, even as queer people, kind of like pushed on ourselves because I know definitely even I, like, when I'm like struggling, I'm just like, well, whatever, I can still be fabulous. You know, mm-hmm. and that's kind of a, a mechanism, but it's not necessarily healthy. Yeah. What was it that was being asked of you? Not to be too gay, not mm. to be too vocal about queer issues. It's like, it's okay as an aesthetic, but the minute you start actually talking about issues, then it's a problem. Mm. You know? Like fall in line to mainstream stuff. Yeah. But I've even had queer people that I was working with tell me that. Really? Kid you not. So, like, have the aesthetics, be fabulous, own that you're queer, but don't talk about, like, queer politics. Don't talk about— Don't talk about queer politics. Don't talk about queer struggles. Don't let your guard down. Don't be seen—yeah. It's like— How did you deal with that kind of pressure or feedback? I mean, it's hard, especially since I was so young. I was, like, 19, 20, you know, and still coming into myself. And that's the thing, too. I always come from a very open family. I've always been very open— And that was always, like, a blessing for me. And, like, not every queer person was blessed with the upbringing that I was blessed with. And so to come in very open, very openly queer, very comfortable with it, the minute that I started being a public figure and going into that is when I started to feel that insecurity and questioning because people around me were just trying to mold me into what they thought a queer person was. Yeah. And it was kind of sad because it's just like, I shouldn't be this sad because I'm doing something that I love and I have like this really great life and job. And to have to also like suppress something while doing something that I love, it affected my relationship with music. Is that what happened on Ratchet? Yeah, like a lot of the songs... The production just—I didn't have any hand in the production. Um, And it was frustrating for me. I wrote everything, but I was too scared to speak up. I was so young, you know. Yeah. And I was just like, well, you know, I'm, like, on a pretty major label. And the fact that they're, like, letting me at least, you know, write my stuff, I should be grateful. But it was really—it still was uh, very—I don't know, I felt held back. Please welcome Shamir. It all came to a head the night Shamir was scheduled to perform on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, his first national TV performance. 
Shamir says he told his managers he didn't want to perform on the regular and begged them to do something else, but he felt pressured into performing his big hit. Hi, hi, howdy, howdy, hi, hi. Well, everyone is money, so you can call me multiply. Just so you know, yes. The performance kicks into high gear, and Shamir is really animated, super high energy. He looks like he's at the top of his game. But on the inside... I was just, like, already just pretty broken down by then. Um... I had already visually gained weight from all the emotional eating. It was just really, that was really hard. It was even hard to, like, watch back. I looked visibly dissociated, and I really was. I don't even remember the performance. I just remember getting on stage and getting off. And that was, like, pretty much the breaking point. That was, like, the day that I was just like, okay, I can't do this forever. Nancy will be back in a minute. We're back. So after Ratchet, Shamir took time off. He didn't release any music for about two years. At first I thought, I thought that time was writer's block. And that's what I told people at the time. But honestly, I was just scared to write music because I'm like, I'm going to write all these songs in the way that feels natural to me, but I'm not going to be able to release them. And if I do, it's going to be manipulated until where it wasn't recognizable. But then, in April 2017, he was suddenly hit by a compulsion to write again. I didn't leave my room that whole weekend. It was, like, literally my bed with my four-track. I had all my instruments in my bed, and I'm not even sure I ate. It was my first, like, brutal, manic episode. Yeah. Um, it's still hard for me to make sense of it. I don't know, just, like, releasing that much creative energy in such a short period of time while also, like, being very mentally unstable, it feels very surreal and almost kind of like a dream. He didn't know it at the time, but it turns out he was suffering from bipolar disorder, and this was a manic episode. By the end of that weekend, he had a new album, which he released for free on SoundCloud. The album's called Hope, and it sounds totally different from Ratchet. Hope was just, like, a thing that just, like, happened. It feels very, like, otherworldly. I don't know. What was it what Was it like to hear back to, like, your you being in a manic period? I, I don't know. I like it. I don't feel a certain type of way about Hope. Hope is actually great for me because it just, like, it shot the shot. Like, it shot, like, the first shot. Like, it was, like, the bomb that cleared everything. It was, like, the anti-ratchet. Yeah. But also just, like, not even just, like, for my career, but, like, in my personal life, for everything, everything. You know, after Hope, my whole life changed. Like, my life has not been the same since Hope. So you're doing much better now, and you released another album called Revelations, which is more lo-fi and personal. So it sounds like your music keeps evolving and is really different than your first album. So I'm wondering, how have your early fans responded? Like, what's the feedback been like? I don't know who's listening to me these days. Hmm. I really don't. But I think I honestly, like, have pretty much a whole brand new, like, fan base, which is wild. Mm. Like, I've literally started over. Like, Mm. I'm, like, a brand new artist again. Yeah. 
do you have any sense of how specifically queer listeners have either like joined you or stopped listening or, you know? There's been, I would say, a decent amount of queer listeners, especially because the music now speaks more on queer topics and problems more than anything I've ever done. Yeah. But there's a bunch of little angry queers that is just like mad that they can't dance to my music no more. Really? Like they mad. They're like mean. <laughs> like on social media? On or? social media and that shows. Oh my God. Like you owe them nothing. <laughs> yeah. That's like that's the, like the thing. It's like your music used to make me so happy. And I'm like, well, it used to make me miserable. Yeah. Do you perform Ratchet, songs from Ratchet? No, no more. None of them? No. Um, well, if the crowd is nice, oh. I will do some as encore acoustically. Mm-hmm. I, like, let them, like, shout out whatever they want to hear, um, but never on the regular. Shamir says that these days, he's feeling more free to write the kinds of songs he's always wanted to. We had a guitar in the studio, and Shamir agreed to play us one of those songs. It's called Straight Boy. Can someone tell me why? I always seem to let these straight boys ruin my life. I guess I'm just too nice to run away or stay alive. Who I trust and who's surrounding me and Hope that there's any good left in this life The trust I give isn't given to me And the hate inside is all I see And they're clinging to a false sense of pride That's musician Shamir Bailey. You can see his full performance of that song plus another track called I Can't Breathe over at nancypodcast.org. Okay, credits time. Producer? Matt Collette. Sound designer? Jeremy Bloom. Editor? Jenny Lawton. Executive producer? Paula Schumann. We had extra help this week from Irene Trudell and Ken Nowacki. I'm Tobin Lowe. I'm Kathy Tu. And Nancy is a production of WNYC Studios.